Would you turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15? Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 will be the subject of my reading and preaching this morning. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's hear God's word together. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate it. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost, and has been found. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word this morning, and the preaching of it. We pray that you would bless it to our soul. As prodigal sons and daughters, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you've heard the phrase YOLO, and every once in a while I, I come up on a phrase or an acronym that I am not familiar with. Uh, IKR was something I it took me years to recognize is I know, right? I didn't know that. Well, YOLO is something that I even used, and I had no clue what it meant. And YOLO means you only live once. Go figure. But YOLO means uh, you only live once, and it's used as an acronym that it, it, at any point in the conversations with friends, as you talk about something excessive or buying something that, that's really expensive or doing something that's very dangerous or perhaps even foolhardy or embarrassing, you say, well, you only live once. And somehow that's a justification for indulgence, self-indulgence. It's a justification for doing something that we know to be wrong or or not good. I think the reality that, well, we only live once should be used in an opposite manner, and that is to sober us up to the fact the life you live is the only one you will ever receive 
in this world. And therefore, what you do now will echo in eternity. Words of wisdom from Russell Crowe. And he's right on. What we do has an, has a, uh, has an impact on the, our eternity. C.S. Lewis talks about end-of-life issues and end of living life only once and what we live for in our appetites. This is what he has said. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. This this is absolutely the human condition. And he says, in conclusion, we are far too easily pleased. Well, this morning's passage is about a young man who is far too easily pleased. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, there is a principle that is established with regard to inheritance. And in that passage, it speaks of the inheritance of a firstborn son. The firstborn son would receive a double measure of what every other subsequent son would receive. So every son, uh, when a father dies, uh, what, what, what what is the sum total of all of his personal wealth would be divided equally amongst all the sons. And yet... For the one son who is firstborn, even if that firstborn is the son of a less than loved wife in multiplicity of wives sort of society, if in fact that's the case, and occasionally it was, the firstborn received a double portion, and that was the law of God. And so here are two sons, and... One day, when their father dies, there would be a transference of property, uh, and it would only happen through inheritance. And so, basically, they're waiting for the father to die. When the father dies, then the land and all of his resources would be divided between the two sons. We're not told of any others, just two. So the death of the patriarch, the death of the father, would bring about that that summarizing of all of his wealth and, and a distribution to the sons. All real property had to stay within the family. And if there were no sons, if there was no first, well, there, there, if there were no sons, uh, the, the the privileges would pass on to daughters. And then if no daughters, no children, it would pass on to uncles and and uh, brothers and then uncles and then further to any closest of kin. And that was how it was done. And so think about inheritance and think about your children or, or, or your, your, your beloved uh, niece or nephew or, or to whomever you will leave what you possess when you die. Think of that person. And what if that person came to you ahead of time and said, Mom, Dad, Auntie, Uncle, Good Friend, Beloved, Beloved friend and companion, I want now what you will one day leave for me. That's what this boy is doing. <clears throat> this, is, this boy has come and he has asked an extraordinary question of his father. Now, there are three people that we see in this passage. And the first is the prodigal son. There are three people, the prodigal son, uh, the, the benevolent father and the angry brother. And we see all three of those persons, and they will be the the outline of our sermon this morning. So let's examine these three. A man had two sons, is what we are told in this passage. And clearly, what's in view here is that God is the father that's in view in this story. God is the father, and there are two sons. Two sons are identified, too, within the framework of Jesus' story. As he's speaking to this group and as he's speaking to these individuals, we remember verse 1 of chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What's in view with regard to those two sons are those two people groups. The younger prodigal, they are the 
They are the lost ones, the fornicators, the, the sinners, the tax collectors. The elder son is uh, the Pharisees and the scribes who complain and grumble. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. They clearly are the ones who are the angry, uh, who, who comprise the angry brother. They are the religious. They are the ones who want no part of grace. They only want what they believe they themselves deserve. They, 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 they believe in meritorious expectation. However, the first son, before he returns to the father, they in fact are the ones who are filled with sin, who have pursued their own end. They are lost and broken. They are ravaged by their own sins. They are enslaved. And yet in grace, through Christ Jesus, they are redeemed. And they are freed. This young man is a teenager. This is a very inappropriate request to come to his father and to say, I'm just waiting for you to die. And of course, we know that's not what he says, but that's the sum of what he says. Imagine if one of your children comes to you and says, I no longer want to live in this house. I have no desire still to remain under your tutelage. I, I cannot stand your authority. I will not live in this home. I have no desire to listen another day, not one single day to you. I have no intention of ever being in this home again. What I want is what I have coming to me. And when I get what's coming to me, I'm not going to waste another moment. I'm leaving. It sounds much nicer in the passage, but that's fundamentally what this boy is saying. Here is a teenager who has figured it all out. Here is a teenager who knows what he needs better than you do. This is an inappropriate request. Its purpose couldn't be anything worthwhile. The value of all the entire inheritance is invested in land and crops and livestock and actual goods. And the son is essentially saying to the father, I, I, I want you to die and give what's coming to me. But because you won't die and you're stubborn, I want what's coming to me now. Well, this is an inappropriate request, and he has no desire to continue to work. He doesn't want to provide a return to his parents' care. All he had to do, because his father's his inheritance was invested in all of this, was to contribute toward his own inheritance by working for his father as the brother did, the older brother, to serve him and do what he has asked, to go out into the field, not as a servant, but as a son. But he would not do that. Not another day. He couldn't stand it. There's no way I'm going back out in that heat. There's no way I'm going out with the servants. There's no way I'm watching the sheep or harvesting the crops anymore. I will not contribute another cent towards my father's wealth. And that's what he was determined to do. There's, there's no desire to continue to work. He, he has a clear desire for life outside of the covenant and in the world. He has an appetite for the world, and he believes the world can satisfy his longing. There's not a single hint that the son is in any way considering his father, his father's need of him, his brother, his other family members, his mother, his sisters, his obligations as a son. Nothing. This is a self-centered man. This is a young man filled with his own appetites, and he's not considering how his actions will, will bring shame on his father. He's thinking only of himself. And this is what a sinner does. They have no interest in God. They, are, they desire independence. They've exchanged the truth for a lie, and they will not have God. That is the attitude of every sinner. Before we are redeemed, without relationship to God. And so the estate would have to be calculated and liquidated to some extent. The land would not be sold, but crops and animals would be sold and given to the son. And so the younger receives a third. The old elder brother deserves those, uh, being the firstborn, deserves that double share. So he receives a third. He removes himself from the estate. All that remained would be the elder son's inheritance, and that's all that remains. And the father says that at the end. All that I have is yours. 
In verse 12, in the latter section, it says he divided his property between them. In in the Greek, it's literally he divided his life between them. He divided his life, his livelihood, the entirety of himself. There's something about being a parent, isn't there? When a child leaves the home, there is a division of oneself. There is there is a painful loss. We can only imagine what's going through the heart of this father as he watches his boy leave, as he realizes, as he knows that that boy is not prepared for what he will encounter, as he as he thinks that about the motives of his son as to why he wanted his riches now and what he would do with it, the very attitude or the very act of the father to watch and see his son in the distance indicates that the father knew this was where this was going. The son gathers all he has, and it takes him a few days because his father has given him much, and he goes to a far country. It's not surprising. He's unwise for a young man uh, to have access to large sums of money. Parents don't give your children a ton of money. They'll never do anything good with it. Teach them wisdom. Teach them about saving. Teach them about being a responsible steward before God. Teach them how to save and how to spend. Teach them wise principle of principles for how to spend on things that are needed, on resources that make sense versus consumable goods that are gone in a moment. Well, what is this son doing as he leaves and as he begins to give himself over to riotous living? Our imaginations don't need to go very wild. He's, he's scorning what is safe and good and wholesome, part of his heritage. He scorned his very DNA as a godly young man, as as his father raised him to be. He's scorning mother, father, family, embracing the unknown of his assumption that the world is better. And he's convinced that the world is better, that it's better to live wantonly. He loves and he's going to live for his fascination. He's going, he's going to give himself over to his love. All that he's going to live for is himself, his insatiable appetite. And so self becomes the idol that he worships. He's going to find himself. He's going to live and let live. He's going to taste the forbidden fruit. He's going to raise hell and destroy his body and soul. In the passage, he squandered his property in reckless living. There's a Greek word. And it's, it's like what you did when you went do when you have grain and you toss the grain up into the air after threshing it and the wind drives the chaff away and the grain falls straight down. That's what you do. And this young man took his money and he threw it up into the air. That's what he's doing. What a waste. He's devouring his father's property. He squandered it. And he's, according to verse 30, in the brother's full knowledge of what his brother has done. His brother has literally opened the window and thrown all the money out, and he's devoured his property with prostitutes. There's nothing left. What has driven this man to do this, this young man? Love of pleasure. A hedonistic desire. A perverse desire for his satisfaction of his body at the utter neglect of his soul. And ultimately, dear friends, we have to recognize this. What leads this young man to do this, this boy? Hatred. Hatred of his father. Hatred of his spiritual heritage. Hatred of the things of God. The embrace of sin, according to Scripture, dear friends, leads to enslavement to sin, an increase of sin, and being consumed with with it. It, Sin takes everything. Where does it end? Scripturally, we're told the wages of sin is death. That's where sin ends. Unrepented, sin taken into into our bosoms, uh, rejoiced over, clung to, and not forsaken nor repented of, leads to death. And not just... A physical death, but the death of the soul, not just of our bodies, though sin ravages our bodies. It also leads to the death of our soul. 
The scripture says further, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. You see, separation from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Isaiah 59 says, you you may be sure that your sin will find you out, Numbers 32. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Galatians 6.7 The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Galatians 6.8 Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19-21 Darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And so God will give them over those sinful desires of their heart and their shameful lusts in a depraved mind, according to Ephesians 4 and Romans 1. Sin kills you. Sin kills you. Sin wants your death. And not just your physical death, but your, your spiritual death. Sin will kill you. If you embrace sin, if you continue in sin, if you hold fast to sin, it will kill you. So what should you do? Repent of your sin. You turn away from it. And you flee to God in Christ. And you ask for forgiveness. And you promise the Lord, Oh Lord, if you give me the grace to do so, I will not return to that sin again. And then if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We see that demonstrated here in this very passage today. Where does this young man's sin come to its end? Well, he takes a job feeding pigs. This is a Jewish boy. Feeding pigs is unclean work. It's far worse than what his father had him do. He was a son. He would he would command the servants what to do in the fields, didn't he? In the end, he receives far worse than what he himself had forsaken because it was too much. He's unclean, and now he's starving, and no one's giving him anything. He's, his pleasures are no longer pleasurable. He's got nothing left to spend on them. And is he filled with good, fond memories and pictures of all that he is? No, we're not told that any single thought came into his mind, except deep conviction over the wrongness of what he had done. His sin has led to his soul and his body's destruction, very much like people that we observe in the news today who have given themselves over to drug use, and they began with pot and speed, and then they went on to something deeper and bigger, and eventually they're smoking uh, they're, 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 they're doing, they're doing, uh, they're, they're injecting themselves and then they're burning, uh, cocaine, uh, and, and, uh, rock cocaine. And the next thing you know, they're, they're, they're depending on some other deeper, uh, and worse, a bit, uh, uh, opiate. And nowadays in our drug infused society, we, we have to come right, uh, a drug abuser has to come right to the edge of death in order to be satisfied and to fulfill that longing, that itch for a greater high. And so fentanyl, fentanyl is, is now laced into those drugs. Fentanyl will kill you, the tiniest bit. I remember years ago selling as a, at Sweet Life, we would sell a particular brand of cigars, cheap and junk off the shelf, and came in little blue and green tubes. And what they would do is they would unfold these things, put in rock cocaine, refold them, and then smoke them just like that in the day before pipes. Have you ever seen the face of someone who is a complete out-and-out addict? They've lost teeth. Their face is sallow. There's no life there. Their hair is threadbare. Uh, sometimes they have no teeth left because they've neglected themselves and the drugs are killing them. They can barely get a thought out. They're, they're agitated and they're moved constantly. 
And you ask them to concentrate on something they really can't. They've got a story, and it's so sad. That's where this boy is. He has reaped what he has sown. And in his body, you can see the filth all over him as he feeds swine in the field. No one's giving him food, and he's starving. This is a deplorable human condition. He no longer looks like that fresh-faced, innocent young man that came to his father with disdain. Now you see the lines of sin in his face. He's broken. He's filthy. There's a stench. There's something worse, though, that remains with sinners, and that is a knowledge of good and evil, a knowledge of sin, isn't it? When we've sinned, isn't it true that even though we find pardon and grace and the forgiveness and our guilt is removed, are we not still left with a seriousness about what we have done a weeping over what way we have lived and the licentious way in which we have lived and a sour before God that we were ever like that. There's a seriousness in this young man that that didn't need to be there. He's a young boy. He never should have lived in this way. Never should have been out on his own. And yet this was his choice. This is always the result for anyone who has committed themselves to a life of self-indulging sin. Your sin will enslave you and it will kill you. It will never give you the life that you believe it promises. The wages of sin is death. And and the, the fact is that sin always promises satisfaction. And it can deliver for a moment. It can. It will. But it brings a bitterness. A bitterness that lasts. And a memory that lasts. And you may reap in your body what you so with it, you most assuredly reap with your soul what you sow with your body. Well, you know, one day this young man hatches upon a plan, and the language in Scripture is so, so, so interesting. It says that one day he came to his senses in verse 17. He just came to his senses. Ever, ever had a moment like that where you're thinking through something and then just all of a sudden, here's the solution. He came to his senses. Before this time, it had never occurred to him to return home. When he went to this employer and, and, and this employer said, I need somebody to feed the pigs. He said, I'll do it. Anything. I'm desperate. Pigs are filthy. They stink horribly. They're one of the worst Animals stench-wise on a farmer's on a farm. It's true. They're the worst. They're not little animals you can cuddle up with in the hay. They're not that at all. They muddy the ground. They root. They dig. They stink. Uh, they, 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 they defecate all over the place. They wallow in it, and they delight in doing so. Their food has to be garbage, as it were, and they adore it. They are not cuddly sheep. It didn't occur to him when this man said, yeah, I need someone to go out and feed the pigs. It never occurred to him to say, I could do better if I went and was hired by my father. It didn't come to him at that point. But it finally comes to him. He comes to his senses. And in his mind, uh, and, uh, there's, there's, we can see that a light has turned on. I'll tell you what has happened. What has happened in this young man's soul in this story is he has come to a saving understanding of his need for redemption. He is converted. Clearly here is a, a picture of salvation. And this in this picture, the Holy Spirit of God has come in that secret sovereign work into his heart and into his soul and has awakened that boy. You've made a shipwreck of your life. Now return to your father and you might find mercy. And that's what he does. 
There is recognition here in this passage. He has come to his senses, not just that I can be treated better over there, but I have sinned against heaven and my father. This is the realization that must come to all of us before we can ever be saved. I have sinned against God and I have sinned against even myself, my own body, my brothers and sisters. He's come to understand the stupidity of his pursuit of sin and how foolish it is to live apart from God and what a fool he's been to leave his father's house Now, the one thing he could not abide, it has become the one thing that he most wants. I will go to my father and I will work in his fields, not as a son because I have no right to do it, but as a hired hand. You see how what he hated has become what he loves. We're going to sing a hymn in a little bit. I was a wandering sheep. He says, I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold. I did not love my shepherd's voice. I would not be controlled. I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to roam. At the end, it says, I was a wandering sheep. I would not be controlled. But now I love my shepherd's voice. I love, I love the fold. I was a wayward child. I once preferred to roam, but now I love my father's voice. I love, I love his home. This boy has come to that. And it's nothing but that secret, sovereign, inner work of the Holy Spirit that has brought this change. He now sees how well his father has treated his servants. He sees the benefits of the covenant protection and the love of his father. He sees a broken community of sinners, and yet he says, I love my home. He now sees how well his father treats his servant. So he wants to be a servant. His covenantal relationship has been forsaken. He has no right to anything. Penniless, bankrupt, broken, corrupted, unclean. But a genuine, honest, startling realization. I have sinned against heaven and against my father. And I will go back and I will tell him, oh, how important it is. If you're a child of God, if you would be a disciple of Jesus Christ, You must admit your sin. If you will not admit your sin, you cannot be a child of God. If you're denying it, if you refuse to acknowledge it, you have not experienced God's grace. And you will not until you do. My prayer for you today is that you will. By that secret, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, come upon our hearts and make us so that we are not unwilling to acknowledge our sin, to hold on to our pride. He has no right to anything. He has forsaken his standing as a son. He's going to ask the Father for mercy. There's no presumption. He understands his unworthiness to receive forgiveness and acceptance and pardon. And he returns to his home. But before he can get all the way there and before he can utter a single phrase, his father has run out to see him. And that's the second point of our passage this morning. Can you imagine the father's pain? His son wanted complete separation. He was only interested in his father's resources. Wanted freedom from his wisdom, his restraints, his commands. Uh, His son believed that any authority his father exercised is the opposite of what he wanted. He, He didn't want to live in his home. He didn't want to see his presence. He didn't want his rules. He didn't want to be near his father anymore. And yet he's home. He's on his way home. And before, when he is a far distance off, he's way away. How would the father, how would anyone but the father recognize his son? He is far, far off in the distance. And the father sees him and runs to him. Keith Green in the prodigal son suite in that wonderful song that he sings. I put it up on the Facebook. I encourage you to have an edifying afternoon. Go home and listen to that song. It's on YouTube everywhere. He says it in this way. I was near home in sight of the house and my father just stared and dropped open his mouth. He ran up the road and fell to my feet and cried and cried. Father, I've sinned. Heaven's ashamed. I'm no longer worthy 
to wear your name. I've learned that my home is right where you are. Oh, Father, take me in. Bring the best robe. Put it on my son. Shoes for his feet. Hurry, put them on. This is my son who I thought had died. Prepare a feast for my son's alive. I prayed and prayed. Never heard a sound. My son was lost. Oh, thank you, God, he's found. My son was dead, and now he's alive. Prepare a feast for my son's alive. My son was dead. My son was lost. My son returned in the hands of God. My son's statement is incomplete. The father doesn't even let him get it all out, so he's determined that he's going to go home, and he's going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He cannot get out that last phrase. The father proclaims his gladness that he has returned and his father has run to him. He's thrown his arms around him and he's hugged him and he has kissed him. He's pulled up his robe. Oh, the indignity. This is not dignified for a Jewish man, an older man. To pull up his robe and to run to his son. But he has hugged him, he has kissed him, and the father's dignity is unimportant to him. Only that his son come home. Do you remember verse 7 and 10? Jesus, in telling the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin, he says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine Righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is illustrating the story not to tell us about a boy, nor about his father, but about God. As a secondary purpose, to show the sin of the brother's response, he's determined, he's determined that not on the basis of any other thing, but merit would he be rewarded by God. But this story is primarily and predominantly about the joyful love of God and the salvation of sinners. God loves to receive repentant sinners. This is what this story is all about. This is something of a window into the heart of God. God, let me say it again, loves to receive repentant sinners. God is the one who initiates salvation. You see, he's the one who is the shepherd who pursues the one lost sheep, wasn't he? In the earlier portions, verses 1 through 7, isn't he the one who goes to find the lost coin in verses 8 through 10? Isn't he the father who looks at who's been looking at the horizon day after day, night after night, and says, my son is returned. And he runs out to him and won't let him finish speaking. God is the one who initiates salvation, pursues the sinner, finds the coin, goes after the lost sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isaiah 53.6 The Father has been waiting. His very thought, his every thought, While working was on his son, he kept an eye constantly on the horizon. He sees him, despite the stench, the almost unrecognizableness of the sun, he sees him and he knows him. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God for sinners. The father is described as having compassion upon his son. The reality for some of us is that we've come from that place. We were prodigal sons. We were prodigal sons and daughters. And we did not want to hear the father's voice. And we did not want nor have an appetite for the word of God. But God, being rich in mercy... has lavishly poured out his grace upon your head and he has called you as his own. Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, 
just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And as the Apostle Paul goes on in that same passage in Ephesians chapter 1, he says he makes reference to the riches of His grace. And he uses this language, which He lavished on us. It means to give far more than you intended to give. Well, the, for you and for me as human beings, uh, I'm going to give. I'm going to give this kind of a portion at the meal, and then someone comes and you love them so much, you you double their portion, you triple their portion. It, it's embarrassing how much you're putting on the plate. It's like filling up the cup and the cup is full, and you keep pouring because you just love this person so much that you've got to give them more and more and more and more. You refill and you refill and you refill and you refill. That's what God has done with us. He has lavishly poured out the riches of Jesus Christ upon our heads. God loves sinners and he has compassion on them. For some of us, we know what this is. Maybe we are prodigal sons. Maybe we have left the Lord of our youth. Maybe we are living according to our own appetites. Return to the Lord while you still can. May God open your eyes and bring you to a realization of your need of Him. That's where sinners must start. Nothing in your hands can you bring. Only feel your need of Him, is what the song says. I need the Lord more than anything else. I need the Lord more than my sinful pursuits. I need the Lord more than my physical pleasure. I need the Lord more than a full tummy. I need the Lord more than a drink. We've had that illustrated here in this congregation for us. Shouldn't that life preach to us day in, day out? But in every way, we are all living in such a way, denying ourselves things that would harm our soul, would harm our bodies, so that we may pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For some of us, we have children who who have become prodigals. They've forsaken their heritage, their mother, their father, their faith, their God. And we've heard we've heard that conversation of that young man to his father. I don't want you anymore. I don't want to live in this home anymore. I don't want to hear your voice anymore. We live with a painful reminder, wondering what we could have done differently, where we went wrong, where God is in the midst of all of this and whether they will ever return to the God of their heritage. We go to sleep wondering, where are they? How is he? How is she? What hope do we ever have that our children will turn from their sin and embrace God, Christ, the Savior, and escape the wrath of God and his holy and righteous judgment? Here's your hope. Not that your child will have an epiphany or an awakening self-awareness or that they'll go to college and they'll learn more and more and more and they'll mature and they'll simply recognize their need to return. No, but that the Holy Spirit will powerfully open their eyes to see their deplorable condition. And I hope you're praying that, that they will taste their brokenness, see their sin and God's judgment. And in that secret, sovereign prompting of the Holy Spirit and the eternal God, that they will turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. If your child belongs to God, dear friend, and he has placed his eternal and electing love upon that person, male or female, child or adult, they can never so distance themselves from God's grace that he can't receive them. He will pursue them, even if he must bring them to an end of themselves. He will do it. He will draw them back to himself in love because that's the kind of God he is. He loves when sinners turn from their sin and repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ and are saved. He loves to redeem the broken. J.C. Ryle says, Never, never let us forget the children for whom many prayers have been offered seldom finally perish. Such prayers are heard on high. Such prayers will often bring down blessings. Let us pray more for our sons and daughters. 
If you say, you know, my child is not a Christian. And if I ask you, are you praying for them? What would your answer be? If your answer is, well, no, I don't. May God have mercy on you. Do you not realize that their highest good and their only means of turning to Christ may be that you would pray for their soul and entreat your God, that God would use that as a means by which he himself, according to his will, would redeem their lives from the pit. You must pray. You must pray for your family, for your unbelieving members of your family, for your children, for your prodigal sons and daughters. God will receive and forgive and pardon all who repent and turn to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. In 1997, I had offended a a fellow pastor. I was a young seminary ordinand, and I had wanted to fulfill an internship I needed to, or I could not graduate from seminary, and so I needed to do that. So I had asked the former pastor if I could be his intern. Then he left and went to another church, and I was left kind of holding that bag in my hand. So I asked the new pastor, can I do an internship with you? He said yes, and then he never did anything with it. And I never heard from him. And I asked him repeatedly, and he just simply never did it. And so finally I returned to my old pastor, and I said, who was about a half an hour away, 40 minutes, and I said, could I do an internship with you? We have a good relationship. Would that be all right with you? Well, this other pastor who dragged his feet, caught wind of it, and was very offended, dragged me in before the session, and told me that uh, I had grievously sinned against him. After thinking about that with my wife, I... I I called him, I asked him if he'd come to our home, and I said, Brother, I ask your forgiveness. I have offended you. Would you please forgive me? And if you're willing, I'd, I'd be grateful to be your intern, if you're still willing to have me. And what he said to me was, the waters have been muddied, and I won't do that. I'll tell you, if, if you go to God with your sin, and you ask him to forgive you, He will never, ever say that to you. The older brother is the last person that we see in this story. I know the time is growing long. What is this celebration? He's angry and he he calls in the servant and he's, he's ticked. He's angry beyond measure and he will not go in. He's, in fact, going to shame his father. Both these boys have shamed their father and their mother and their relations. They brought shame on the family name. The son, by asking for this inheritance before it was time, and now this son, by his conduct. He will not go in. The whole family's there. They're rejoicing in the brother. He will not go in. Oh, he he absolutely is the Pharisees and the scribes, is he not? They're grumbling. They're angry. They're sitting at the table with Jesus. And they're furious that sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus, listening to what he says, and being saved. And that he's eating supper with them and touching them and healing them. This is the brother. See, he's got legal rights. He says, I've served. I've never disobeyed your commands. I've done everything right. He doesn't want grace. He's angry over his father's mercy. He's frustrated. He's even refusing to call his brother his brother. He says, this son of yours. His operative principle is merit, its rights, its obligations, its good behavior. Father, you owe me. It's deserved acknowledgement, recognition of his efforts, an assumed obligation, an expectation of benefit, reward. Based upon his obedience. He doesn't believe he has received what he deserves. He believes the younger brother has received what he does not deserve. And he believes that he himself has a right to what the brother has received. You've never killed a fattened cow for me. You haven't given me so much as a goat to go and rejoice with my friends. You haven't given me anything. How ignorant. The father says... Everything that I have is yours. It's all yours. As you look around you, as you take in the house, as you think about the food and the fattened calf and the goats and everything else that I have, it's all yours. The Pharisees and the scribes 
It was not enough for them that they had the word of God, that they had the temple, the ordinances, the sacrifices, the offerings, the blessings of the presence of God. It wasn't enough. These sinners should not be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They should not receive grace. They do not deserve that. But we ourselves are too good to receive that grace. You see how foolish this is? You know, it's very, very difficult to forgive someone, isn't it, who has wronged us deeply. There's nothing more liberating, nothing more likely to bring us forgiveness to forgiveness than recognition that we ourselves have offended the Lord and we don't deserve grace. And yet he has showered us with his grace. When people come to you and ask you to forgive them, do you? Recently, I sent a letter to someone and I asked, where I've offended you, would you please forgive me? I quoted Ephesians chapter one and two. I heard nothing back. It's so hard to forgive people. And yet God has showered us with his grace. How can we do anything but forgive? If we are mindful of the fact that we deserve nothing from God except judgment and punishment and hell. And we've received grace. How can we ever be indignant to the point where we are unwilling to forgive? All of us are like these two brothers in some sense, either forming rebellion against God, having a distaste for the constraints of belonging to him, having an appetite for the world, feeling the pull of pleasure or having a spirit of expectation and of legality, of assumption, a mere religiosity that has no life, a life without acknowledgement of sin and a need for repentance. My prayer this morning in conclusion is that God, the Holy Spirit, would turn your pleasures into empty things vaporous things that disappear, that don't in any way yield any fruit in your life. And that you would come to hate them and you would love Christ and his righteousness. May he open your eyes and bring you to to your senses. Whomsoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy at his right hand, our pleasures evermore. Oh, God, you are my God, the psalmist says. Earnestly, I seek you and my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as 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 in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, oh, God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. May God give you a thirst for him that transcends your thirst for this world. Well, let C.S. Lewis close this out again, too. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination of standing before God, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Let's pray.